Now, we're gonna, you should have already received a handout. If you're online, you should have received this in an email. You can go ahead and download it. There is a Word doc in there, so if you want to download it and type in notes, you can do that as well. Uh, I should have said earlier, now, there are all kinds of things in the confession itself that you may have lots of questions about. Things like elect infants. And what about the Sabbath? And is the Pope really the Antichrist? Like, is that what we're going to say? You're going to notice that many of those things uh, are stated much later in the confession. So as we go week by week, month by month, what we want to do is train ourselves not to consider each article in isolation from one another. We want to learn to read the confession left to right. Because the confession isn't like a bag of marbles, disjointed and disconnected from one another, all thrown into a bag at once to be individually taken out or added at will. No, it's more like an organic body of unity, vitally connected, organically connected to one another, such that later doctrines are going to be dependent on earlier doctrines. So there may be some of you, for instance, go, I want to know what this whole Sabbath thing is about. Well, there are a lot more categories that we need to build early in our study of the confession before we get to that conversation, if that conversation is going to be helpful. And so for the sake of your own curiosity being satisfied, I'm going to encourage you to be patient with those kinds of questions. Be patient with our time. We're going to take lots of time to go all the way through it, but we're just kind of building categories, strengthening categories, so that those later conversations on perhaps more easily misunderstood topics are uh, more profitable during our time. Okay? Let's go ahead and dive on in. Let's consider what is confessionalism? How do we define it? We want to be able to define our terms well. Anytime we add an ism to anything, we need to be really careful, don't we? We don't want to unnecessarily uh, drive ourselves into some kind of hyper-exclusive sect, which isms have a tendency to do. And so we want to be really careful with how we're defining our terms. This is how I think it would be most helpful to define confessionalism. It's a a confessional Christian or church is one who publicly subscribes, which simply means submits, to an orthodox, historic confession of the Christian faith. You should have in your own handout a quote from Carl Truman. It's so helpful. Creeds and confessions, he says, are human attempts to summarize and express the basic elements of the Christian faith. They've been constructed throughout the ages by people from very different contexts, but who are all bound together by the shared horizons of God's revelation in Christ and in the biblical text and their own common human nature as readers of that text. All creedal formulations are subordinate to Scripture and subject to correction thereby. What Truman is saying there and what's implied in the definition above is that Scripture, or confessions rather, aim to faithfully summarize Scripture that the truth of Scripture might be transmitted from one generation to the next. That we might be able to faithfully understand the whole body of divinity, of the doctrines that are contained in the Scriptures, summarized for our own edification, for the building up of the church. But that is not to say that any creed or confession is ultimately equal with Scripture. Confessionalism identifies that that confessions and creeds have authority over the life of local churches and the teaching of local churches. But that authority is ultimately a subordinate authority. It's a derivative authority. 
So it might be like perhaps in some of our own jobs, we have the guy at the very top of the organizational ladder. All authority rests in him. All decisions rest ultimately in him. And yet that authority is delegated out and it's faithfully exercised insofar as it is true and faithful to the vision, the stated vision, and the goals and the purposes of the one at the top of the org ladder. It's to say that scripture is supreme in authority. There is nothing that is equal to it in authority, and there's nothing that can, that can, uh, that can overcome it in that regard. And so creeds and confessions are authoritative insofar as they are true summaries of the doctrines that are contained within scripture itself. And so we are wise then to submit ourselves to subscribe to those doctrines that have been taken from Scripture and summarized by faithful saints and dwelt by the same Holy Spirit that we are across ages. And so it is not equal to Scripture. It is subordinate to Scripture. But even in its subordination possesses a kind of derivative authority such that we aim to submit to it. That insofar as it's true, when we come to the scriptures, we want to interpret the scriptures according to it. That we might be faithful to teach and to guard the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. Now, I want to add a handful of qualifications to this. In our own experience, many of you have come from churches that have confessions. I imagine that most of you have. Just a brief summary of what it is that this church claims to believe and to teach. But I want to make some distinctions here because not all confessional churches or not all churches with confessions are confessional churches. Here's what I mean by that. There are plenty of churches that perhaps have a confession of faith. They formally recognize perhaps on their website and maybe even that confession makes an appearance in a membership class. that This is what we believe. But by and large, that confession has no meaningful role or relationship to the members of that church. That it has no discernible authority over the teaching of that church. That it serves almost more as as decor for a website, because that's what good Christians are supposed to do, what good churches are supposed to do, but has no practical bearing on the piety and the practice of that local church. In fact, some of you may have been in churches where you kind of read a statement of faith when you looked on its website before visiting. And maybe you caught wind of it when you sat in the membership class. And for all you can recall, you never heard of it again or saw it again or considered it again. And so in this regard, even churches that may have confessions, functionally speaking, are not confessional. That is, they may see confessions as maybe useful tools or good advertising for the website, branding perhaps for our brand of theology or whatever it may be. But at the heart of confessionalism is is recognizing that the teaching and the ministry of our church submits ultimately to what we confess to be true in the scriptures. That it is a means whereby the congregation guards the gospel and it's a means whereby those who are responsible for teaching the word are able to do so faithfully and be held accountable. And so not all churches with confessions are confessional churches. And the line between the one or the other is really, functionally speaking, does that church submit in its piety and practice to the confession in a visible, public, and discernible way? Or is it something that is just more or less given a nod? 
because that's what Christians do, but has no real practical function in the life of the church. So not all churches with confessions are confessional. Confessional churches are those who subscribe and submit to an orthodox historic confession. Secondly, uh, not all confessional churches subscribe to the same confession. There are all kinds of confessional churches. There are a spectrum of confessions. Some are going to be bigger. Some are going to be smaller. Some are going to be more recent. Some are going to be older. Some are going to be confessions that maybe do have a practical import in the life of the church. The church does submit to them, but maybe that was a confession that was written by the pastor before they ever planted the church. So there may be some confessions that are smaller and bigger, that may be newer or older, all kinds of confessions. So if not the Second London Confession, then perhaps a New Hampshire Confession, or perhaps the Abstract of Principles that was derived from the Second London Confession. We see that at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, or maybe even the Baptist Faith and Message. All of these might be considered, on some broad general way, to be attached to confessional churches. But there's one thing that we want to uh, insist on, and that is, as you see it in the definition, that it's not only an orthodox confession, but that it is an historic confession, namely that it stood the test of time. That it's not novel. That it has been tested and refined through the fires of, of waging war for orthodoxy against heresy. That it is historic in the sense that it not only speaks to its present day, that it not only carries contemporary relevance, but that also intends consciously to reach back into the Christian tradition and to locate itself within those patterns of sound words that Christians through the centuries have confessed concerning who God is, concerning Christ, concerning the Trinity. We might consider those things like the Apostles' Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed or the Nicene Creed, self-consciously aiming to reach back and locate itself within the Christian tradition and to articulate scriptural truth in a way that is not only relevant for Christians in that day, but for every day that would come, lifting it from scripture, summarizing it in a way that guards the truth, the, the body of doctrine that we find in the scriptures. What we're recommending to you in the Second London Confession is a confession that locates itself within a particular historic tradition, a Protestant tradition, namely within the Reformed tradition. Now, there's all kinds of confessions within the Reformed, uh, within the Reformed tradition. We're going to consider that a little bit more carefully next week, and so I'm not going to go into that. But what we are specifically doing is saying that there is a particular theological tradition located within the Protestant tradition that we believe is able to summarize and articulate most faithfully what Scripture teaches. And so even though not all confessional churches are necessarily reformed in the way that we're prescribing, what we are prescribing is a reformed confession to locate ourselves within history, to unite ourselves to churches that have believed the same things through the centuries and have stood the test of time. Now, we're going to get into the practical import of that uh, in just a few minutes. Some questions may come up then, well, what about subscription? How much of a confession do you have to 
understand or agree with or uh, be committed to? What if you have some possible disagreements? We're going to be talking about that next week as well, about the nature of subscription and the life of a local church in particular, that it need not be the case, and I'll go ahead and summarize it now, that the same level of subscription be necessary for members as it would be for those who are, who are responsible for the teaching ministry of the church. There is a greater responsibility, a higher level of subscription for those who would aim to be faithful teachers than for those who would be members of the church and are still growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we all are. But not all immature Christians or new members or new Christians need to be in the exact same place or will be in terms of their understanding, their comprehension. And so what we want is a confession, not that everybody can easily confess from day one. I understand every line, every jot and tittle from day one. Now we want a confession that is true to scripture, has stood the test of time that we can grow into by God's grace over many years, right? Like buying a pair of pants that's too big. We want to get into the gym and and exercise and, and grow. This analogy only fits for men. I'm going to buy a pair of pants a few sizes too big because I want to grow into them. You can tell that I've maybe not been so successful in that. The illustration still stands, I think. We want a confession that we can grow into, mature into. As we move from milk into solid food, as we move from childhood, spiritually speaking, into adulthood, that we might grow in a greater understanding of the scriptures. So briefly, that's what we mean by confessionalism. It's a, it's a Christian or a church who publicly subscribes and submits to an orthodox that is true to the revelation of God in the scriptures, historic, it has stood the test of time, confession of the Christian faith. But is there any biblical precedence for this? What's the biblical precedence then for confessions? Follow along with me. If you brought your Bible, I hope you did. Open up to Exodus 13. If not, you can grab a Bible from under the seats around you. Exodus 13. And I want you to go first to verse 14. Exodus 13, 14, and 15. What is the biblical argument for confessions? Is there any biblical precedence for it? Beginning in verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And he says, it shall be as a mark on your hand and the frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, God's revelation has come at different times in different ways. Moses is talking to a generation that experienced God's saving power. But subsequent generations didn't have the same experience. They weren't direct recipients of the same revelation. They didn't receive God's word and works in the same way as previous generations. And so what God is telling them to do is 
to preserve it, to transmit it, to pass it down from generation to generation. Then when your son comes and you're in the land and he wants to know how we got here, this is exactly what you're to say. You need to summarize in a kind of creedal form who I am and what I did. Because I'm not going to do it again. I've already revealed myself. I've already redeemed myself or redeemed you from Egypt. It's your job now to take that revelation and repeat it in this way to generation after generation as your children come. By the way, if you get to the book, when you get to the book of Judges, you notice that there's always one generation after another. Right? The wilderness generation goes into the land. The very next generation falls away from the Lord. He brings it back to repentance, and then the very next generation falls away. And in all of this, it's a failure on Israel's part to guard its confession as given to them by God. That they have a generation that does not know the Lord. And it was a failure specifically in the families, but as a nation as whole, to do exactly what God is telling them to do, to take these patterns of sound words, this confession, to teach it and explain it to your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're already familiar with it, most of you are, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice that confession there in verse 4. It's a confession of faith for every individual and ultimately for the entire nation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is their foundational creed. This is what they say we believe concerning the God who redeemed them. And so at the heart of their confession then is no more than four words in the Hebrew text. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The point of the confession was to cement Israel's commitment to serve and to obey the Lord alone. It was to be an outward confession of an inward conviction. But notice also that it served as a theological guardrail to protect orthodoxy in their worship. How often did Israel stray off into the worship of idols, worshiping the gods of the nations around them? All of that was, in essence, the neglect of this summary confession of who God is. It was to deny what God told them to confess and to pass down. But notice also in the very next verse in chapter in verse five, that orthodoxy doesn't lead ultimately to a cold confession. But what does it lead to? You shall love. Love who? To love God. Orthodoxy always leads to doxology. Orthodoxy is meant to lead toward love for God. 
And as we know from the teachings of Christ, as he summarized the law under the Old Testament or the other Old Covenant, that, that God's whole moral law is not just to love God, but even from, from that to love others. This is what true doctrine does, is it promotes love. But now notice at the beginning of verse 6 that just as with the Passover liturgy that we just saw in Exodus, God commands Israel to use this confession for catechesis, for instruction. The confession and instruction were to permeate every sphere of Israel's life. It was meant to guard its doctrine and it was meant to ensure its faithfulness to the Lord. And so here we have just in a couple of examples, Israel's responsibility to be able to summarize God's revelation, to be able to pass it down to subsequent generations, and to be able to do it in a way that as they go and talk about it and explain it and sing about it, that they would do it in a way that is true to what God has revealed about about himself. And so, in a very real sense, Israel was a confessional community. This is what we believe And that was meant not only to shape their thoughts about God, but how they worshiped and how they lived among one another. It shouldn't come as any surprise then that if confessional instruction lies at the heart of Israel's theology, that it lies at the heart of the church of the New Testament as well. And we see the same pattern that we've seen here in the Passover liturgy and the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. We see it appearing in Paul's letters. In fact, we see it appear five times in the form of five trustworthy statements. Turn to the letter of his first letter to Timothy, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so we see this idea, Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, as prominent in all four of the Gospels. It encapsulates Jesus' teaching concerning his own identity and mission, as well as, Jesus taught, everything that the Old Testament taught concerning him. That all of the law and the Psalms and the prophets, that they all testify about me. And by this, he was speaking of his own death and resurrection. And so Paul here is summarizing the teaching of Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament anticipation in a single statement. He's restating Christ's teaching. And he's doing it in a way that would be passed down in a confessional form to the churches. This is a trustworthy statement. And it is deserving of full acceptance. In other words, when you think about who Christ is and what he came to do, you should be able to put on repeat, put on a loop, this brief confessional statement that I've given you that faithfully summarizes the person and the work of Christ. But go over to chapter 3. He does it again. There's three trustworthy statements in his letter. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says it again. This saying is trustworthy, that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Isn't it interesting? Paul is not only concerned with essential doctrines, but he's also concerned with secondary doctrines. 
Many evangelicals today have an allergy to non-essential doctrines. We're interested really in, in those doctrines that are saving doctrines. Everything else, we would say, is agree to disagree, negotiable. Many of whom might even say that in the New Testament, there's really nothing prescriptive at all about how to organize a church, about church order, about church leadership. But here, the Apostle Paul, in the form of another trustworthy statement, that is one that should be accepted and one that should be passed down from one generation to the next, he's not only concerned with the right confession of Christ, but he's also concerned with the right order of churches. And so also should any good confession be concerned with confessing what is true concerning the person and the work of Christ, but also of how Christ himself would have his churches be ordered for his own glory, for the building up and the edification of the saints, for the right teaching of the gospel. Paul's concerned about all of these things and church order or polity and church leadership are all important and essential matters to the guarding and the propagation of the gospel. Well, he gives us another trustworthy statement in the very next chapter, chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. This third comment is going to have to do with practical discipleship. So we've seen a confession concerning who Christ is and what he's done. We've seen a confession about how to begin ordering churches. And now we're going to see a confession concerning practical discipleship. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of every value in every way as it holds fast for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, verse 9 is referring to what he just said there in verses 7 through 9. It's rooted in what we confess to be true about Christ. It's rooted in our life together, ordered in local churches. But it's also summarizing Jesus' teaching in Luke 18. You may remember there, Jesus taught that those who forsake families and houses for his sake will receive much more in this life and even more in the life to come, that is, in eternal life. And so the early church following Paul's lead, took Jesus' teaching concerning the heart of discipleship, of following Christ, generalized it, as we see here, and then produced a trustworthy statement concerning practical godliness and discipleship. What do we believe about Christ? How do we order our life together in churches in order to guard the gospel of Christ? And how do we live in light of that gospel? Well, here in one letter, Paul's given us three trustworthy statements that help summarize and to pass down from one generation to the next what that looks like. We have two more trustworthy statements, though. We have another one in the very next letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at this, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, he says, once again, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he also remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here we have this rooted again in Christ's teaching. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated for all or by all for my sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You remember elsewhere, the Apostle Paul taught, now if we have died with Christ, we believe also that we will live with him. So this doesn't mean that Paul thinks church tradition is equal to the words of Christ, that is to scripture, but that church can, the churches should faithfully summarize and proclaim again and again and again the truth of scripture fulfilled in Christ. That's what we see here. Many scholars believe this is one of the earliest hymns or creeds of the church. Speaking of which, another early creed we find in Paul's letter to Titus. Go to the very next book. All of these pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are concerned with the right order of, of, of churches as well as the guarding of the true gospel. And so it's not odd then that these creedal statements would fill up his pastoral letters. It should shape the local churches. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. I want you to repeat them. I want you to memorize them. I want you to defend them. And I want you to transmit them from one generation to the next. Insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Commentators suggest that this is one of the earliest Christian creeds. It was perhaps even used in the early church as a baptismal hymn. By describing verses 4 to 7 as trustworthy, Paul, as one scholar put it, quote, certifies that he has faithfully handed down the tradition that he has received, specifically from Christ. So not only does he want the church to insist on an orthodox confession, but that their confessional orthodoxy would shape their orthopraxy, their practice. Namely, in verse 8, that it would compel them to devote themselves to good Works to obedience to God's law. J.B. Fesco summarized all these trustworthy statements, the five that we've looked at in this way. He said the fact that the revelation confession pattern, that is that God has revealed himself in his word and most notably through Christ, and that has been now summarized in a con- in a confession, these trustworthy statements, the fact that the revelation confession pattern has precedence both in the Old Testament and the New confirms that with appropriate scriptural safeguards, there is biblical warrant for the church to create and maintain confessions of faith. Those things that summarize sound doctrine, those things on which we must insist that we would be able to devote ourselves to proper piety and practice. Finally, Jude 3, perhaps the most commonly cited, almost to the end of your Bible, right before Revelation, Jude 3, he says this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. One of the chief concerns you can see there in verse 4 of Jude's audience is the refutation of false teachers. Of those that would pervert the gospel and undermine God's revelation of himself in Christ. Jude exhorts them to contend for the faith. That faith that was once for all delivered or handed over, literally, to the saints. Here, that word faith, it's not subjective. It's not talking about faith in the terms of resting upon Christ, of believing upon Christ. It's not subjective in that sense. No, it's objective. It's concerning the content of the Christian faith of the summary of sound Christian teaching, both in the Old Testament anticipating Christ and its fulfillment in Christ, and now of all of the benefits of the gospel that we enjoy in the new covenant and the responsibilities to which we're enjoined as members of that covenant. It's, in other words, sound doctrine. Scriptural teaching rooted in the truth about God and His will for salvation. And so Jude tells them then that They've received this revelation as an objective body of knowledge and that it's been delivered, literally handed over to the saints. It's not something that they discovered. It's not something that they invented. It was something that was revealed and was to be summarized and guarded and transmitted just as we saw in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's why it's interesting, isn't it, that Jude uses similar categories as those in Israel's confessional identity. The practice of transmitting an authoritative tradition to subsequent generations of revelation and repetition so that they might guard the truth of the gospel, that they might guard orthodoxy, that their souls would be secured. They wouldn't throw away their confidence or drift away from Christ that would keep them firmly anchored. It's just a handful of passages. We could look at a number of others, but I think you get the point, that there seems to be a pattern in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, that shows not only these are the specific confessions that we should confess, but that there is a pattern of the church confessing that which has been revealed in Scripture for the sake of guarding orthodoxy. And so with that being said then, How do we consider a confession? What about certain objections that come against it? What about certain pitfalls or certain ways of thinking about it? I want to move to the next point, a brief defense of confessions. And I want to make five specific points. First, I want to make the point that a confession is inevitable. It's inevitable. And secondly, I want to make the point that a confession is public. Thirdly, a confession is clarifying. Fourthly, a confession is tested. And fifthly and finally, a confession is regulative. Regulative. Let's begin with that first one. A confession is inevitable. Some of you have heard, and maybe even some of you have said somewhere along the line, Bible only, no creed but Christ. No creeds but deeds, we might say. The irony of all of those, though perhaps coming from well-intended Christians, is a desire on the one hand to uphold scriptural authority, that the Bible alone has supreme authority in our lives. And so we want to recognize then that 
We're not beholden to tradition. No, that's what Roman Catholics do. We're not beholden to certain institutions. No, all I need is the Holy Spirit and me with a Bible under a tree. The irony of all of these, Bible only, no creed but Christ, no creeds but deeds, is that all of these are creeds. We all have them. Creeds are inevitable. Carl Truman puts it this way, Creeds and confessions are human attempts to summarize and express the basic elements of the Christian faith. They've been constructed throughout the ages by people from very different contexts, but who are all bound together by the shared horizons of God's revelation in Christ and in the biblical text and in their own common human nature as readers of that text. All creedal formulations are subordinate to Scripture and subject to correction thereby. Every single person is creedal, without exception. The question is not whether or not some people have creeds and some people don't. It's not whether some people interpret the Bible in certain ways and other people just say what the Bible says. It's not that some people bring certain kind of presuppositions and predetermined values to the scriptures when they interpret it, but others somehow manage to come to the Bible as a blank slate, bringing no baggage with them. No, the reality is, is that everyone has a confession. Everyone has a creed. The difference is, is that some of them are public and some of them are not. They're either stated or they're not. They're either open to scrutiny or they're not. And that leads us to our second point. The question ultimately isn't whether or not a person or a church has a confession or not, but whether or not that confession is public and whether it's open to scrutiny. Another scholar put it this way, Christians are not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. Rather, they're divided between those who have public creeds and confessions that are written down and exist as public documents subject to public scrutiny, evaluation, and critique, and those who have private creeds and confessions that are often improvised, unwritten, and thus not open to public scrutiny, not susceptible to evaluation, and crucially and ironically, not therefore subject to testing by Scripture to see whether they are true. Here's the irony of those who would push back against confessions. They would say, no, the concern is that once you adopt a confession and submit to it, you put that confession on equal plane with Scripture itself. No, what we need to do and what I'm aiming to do is just simply to open the Bible and speak the Bible as the Bible speaks. There's two problems with that. Number one, nobody comes to the Bible as a value-free interpreter. All of us are part of certain communities and certain churches and certain cultures and certain contexts. There are certain glasses that we put on that shape the way that we read, interpret, and apply the Bible. And that is true of every single person who comes to any text, including the Bible, without exception. So you come to the Bible, not value-free, but with all kinds of presuppositions, many of which may not even be known. We're like the frog in the pot. We don't even know that we're boiling. So we happen to live in the West in the, in the 21st century, post-enlightenment, full of individualism and skepticism toward history and institutions. And if we think that that biography doesn't affect the way that we come and read the Scriptures, 
then we're really ignorant to the own baggage that we bring to the Bible. All of us have them. All of us, to some degree, do theology from our biographies. So the question is whether or not some people come with presuppositions to the Bible, certain predetermined commitments or not. The question is, what are those commitments? And are they helpful to the right interpretation of Scripture? Secondly, that person might say, well, I'm just saying what the Bible says. What I don't want to do is impose a framework on the Bible from a confession. No, that puts the, that puts the Bible in submission to the confession. I just want to say what the Bible says. Here's the problem. The moment that you read a Bible that's, by the way, translated in your own language through interpretative philosophies and methods, making certain interpretive decisions for why to use this word and that word, the minute that you read your English Bible and speak your English Bible and attempt to explain your English Bible, you're now within the realm of interpretation, and the question now becomes... Your issue is not ultimately with whether or not confessions have authority or not. At the end of the day, you just believe your own personal, individual interpretation has supreme authority. We all submit to something when we come to the Bible and when we aim to teach the Bible, to explain it and prioritize it. And so are we to assume on the one hand that we've been given perhaps a special portion of the Holy Spirit that we are now able, apart from the church and apart from creedal tradition and apart from what the church has historically confessed, that we're able to just open up the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit and arrive where the church has arrived? No, I would argue that though you might say, if you said that, that's a bigger view of the Holy Spirit. I want to argue to you that that's a smaller view of the Holy Spirit. We interpret the the Bible with the church through the ages because Christ has given His Spirit to the church across the ages, has led her faithfully into the right interpretation of Scripture, into faithful agreements, summaries, and articulations of who God is and of who Christ is and of various other doctrines related to God and the gospel. Are we to say that somehow we have a special portion of the Holy Spirit that was not given to the church through the ages? Are we to say that God in His providence is not able to preserve through His Holy Spirit and dwelt church the ability to preserve His truth from one age to the next and that we've somehow managed to get a special kind of knowledge? That is a gross kind of arrogance. We do well to submit ourselves and to locate ourselves within the faith once for all handed down to the saints through the ages, tested always by Scripture, but not embracing the kind of radical individualism in our interpretation that assumes that we come to the Bible value-free and we simply say what the Bible says. Now, when we come to the Bible, we want our presuppositions to be shaped by what the Bible teaches. We want faithful summaries from the Scriptures to guide us when we come back to the scriptures and when we aim to teach and explain and apply, we want to do it in a way that is faithful to the scriptures according to those trustworthy statements. Thirdly, a confession is clarifying. That is that a confession is both pedagogical and doxological. It's the reception, the summarization, and the transmission of revealed truth from generation to generation to generation It clarifies sound doctrine. In other words, it puts to death ambiguity. I just want to say, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, 
Spiritual abuse in churches thrives in ambiguity. Pastors, congregations are guarded from pastors and pastors are guarded from congregations and the gospel is guarded within churches when there is greater explicitness about what we believe the Bible to teach and we're at greater risk when we operate in greater ambiguity. So it is a clarifying statement. Fourthly, it is tested. We do not want, as C.S. Lewis said, to fall into the trap of chronological snobbery. We don't want to give in to that kind of historical evolutionism that assumes that newer is always better. That, yeah, previous generations did the best they could with the light that they had, but we just know more than they do now. We're building on what they perhaps built, but what we've built is superior to what they had. Now, that may be true in all kinds of fields, medicine and architecture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But is that true when it comes to divine revelation? Certainly, God has proven himself, or Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if we find ourselves confessing things that are novel... new doctrines that have not been historically confessed because we think that we have somehow attained to some special knowledge from our own individual interpretation from the Scripture, well, that new doctrine just makes us an old kind of heretic. We want to tether ourselves to that which is tested, has been proven true, has proven to lead to the edification and the building up and the strengthening of Christ's churches through the ages. Finally, a confession is regulative. It doesn't compete with Scripture, but it guards its right interpretation against false teaching. It regulates the teaching and the worship of the church, in other words. And so it is not that a confession has authority over the Scripture. Scripture has authority over a confession. But it is the case that a confession has authority over my teaching. Does that make sense? So though a confession may not have authority over the scriptures, scripture is the final authority in everything, it does have authority over the teaching of the church. That those who stand up and teach are not living, walking doctrinal statements in themselves. They are submitting humble teachers that aim to transmit to the church the faith once for all handed to the saints. How does a confession work? Now let's get into the nitty-gritty. It does a handful of things, three things really. It unites, it guards, and it guides. How does it unite? First of all, it unites Christians in a church. It's to say to one another, this is what we believe to be true. Most notably about those essential things concerning God and Christ and the gospel and sin and salvation. It even leaves room for those things which we might consider to be tertiary in importance, things over which we might disagree and have good conversations with good friends and faithful brothers and sisters over good food and good drinks. But it summarizes those things that we would consider to be necessary for the theology of piety and practice in the life of our church. And so it unites Christians in a church, but it also unites a church to other churches. 
I've told you this before. Often I'll have people ask me, hey, what is it that makes your church unique from other churches? What makes you stand out? And I understand why they're asking that, right? It's just a common frog in the pot, consumeristic way to say what makes you special. Why should I buy what you're selling instead of what the other guy is selling? And the way that we should answer, I think the most helpful answer is, well, I mean, that's an important question. Certainly, there are going to be some secondary and tertiary things that that we might differ from, from other Christians. But when it comes to who we understand God to be, what the scriptures are, who Christ is, of what the gospel is, I hope that our church is the exact same as every true church in our city, around the world, and through the ages. A confession is not, first of all, an instrument for division. It's an instrument for unity. It's an instrument for looking around and saying, we're with them. This is the same team. And though we might disagree, perhaps, on baptism, or we might disagree on certain aspects of the scriptural application of church polity and these secondary and tertiary issues, those are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And I cannot wait to be with them in the new creation forever. And we are... As long as they are for the gospel, I am for them. And as long as we're for the gospel, they are for us. And so though we might gather in different societies or churches, we are all after the same thing. That is the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the right administration of the ordinances until Christ returns for the building up of his church. And so it unites churches to other churches. It certainly shows where we're different, but even more than that, it shows where we're the same. The second line in confession, by the way, we'll talk more about this next week, is probably somewhere between 80 to 90% identical to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Who confesses the Westminster Confession? That's right, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. What does it say to you that Baptists, who, by the way, were tired of being persecuted by the state church, and really didn't like being drowned for being confused as Anabaptists, why was it so significant that they drew up a confession that took the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, which modified the Westminster Confession of Faith into a congregational church polity, and and married the two and said, here's our confession. Why? Because they're trying to say something. Same team. We might differ in these things, but we're same team when it comes to God and the gospel. Don't drown us, please. We're same team. It's clarifying who we are, who we're not, and it's clarifying who we're with. So it unites us to other churches. It also unites us, as we've stated, to the church in the past. If we're coming up with new doctrines, we're just an old kind of heretic. We want to root ourselves in a classic, historic, confessional identity. I'll just say this real quick. One of the things that I think is so helpful, well, let me put it this way. I've been in ministry in the same city now for almost 20 years. Over the course of those two decades, I've had a number of brothers and and sisters who are in my college ministry who have since left for Roman Catholicism or, or Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy. And if you were to sit down and press them, it wasn't ultimately the doctrine that persuaded them, it was that they looked around at evangelical Christianity and they saw no tie to history. They saw no unity. Each man for himself. 
And they said, I just want to be part of something historically grounded. I look at the Roman Catholic Church and I see a church through the ages. I see Greek Orthodoxy and I see a church rooted in the patristics. I see evangelicalism and I'm surrounded by Christians that think Christianity began in 1517 when a monk nailed something to a door. What faithful confessional theology does is it doesn't just root us in our Protestant identity, but self-consciously reaches back and shows, as John Calvin argues in the opening paragraph of his Institutes, in his letter to the King of France, that in reforming the church, we are in fact the true heirs of the Christian creedal tradition. It's not us who have departed, he says. It's Rome. We're just restoring the church to what the church has historically confessed. So the Reformation was a recovery. And a faithful confession doesn't presume that Christianity began in 1517. It self-consciously aims to tether itself to what Christians have always believed concerning God and man, concerning the scriptures, concerning creation, and many other things. So I look back now and I think so many of these brothers and sisters whom I love and know who have since gone into the Roman Catholic Church and its false gospel, into the Greek Orthodox Church and its false gospel, and I look at these dear brothers and sisters whom I love, and I think they, like me, spent most of their time in evangelical churches that cut them off entirely from their, from their own tradition that reaches all the way back to the scriptures. If only they would have known. If only they would have had this, this confession. If only they would have seen Nicaea and Chalcedon. If only they would have seen the Apostles' Creed. Well, the confession, the second London, aims to summarize and to work all of those into its own confession. What they're trying to say is we're not making up anything new. We believe what Christians have always believed. It ties us to the past. Secondly, it guards. It guards against four things. First of all, it guards against false teaching. By summarizing true teaching, it gives churches and pastors an ability to know what is true versus what is false. We just saw that in one of the trustworthy statements. That's what Jude was aiming to get at. But it also guards against false Christians. By giving us a theology both of piety and practice, it enables and strengthens congregations to exercise their own responsibility, that corporate responsibility to bring true Christians into its membership and to see out those who deny Christ either with their lips or with their lives. So a true confession helps us exercise the keys of the kingdom that Christ has delegated to our church in a way that is faithful, not just identifying true gospel, uh, true gospel um, confessions, but also identifying true gospel confessors. Not because they agree with us on every secondary or tertiary doctrine, because it defines what the gospel is, such that to deny it with your lips or your life is to prove yourself to be against Christ. Thirdly, it guards against capricious leaders. How many headlines do we have to watch of popular leaders over big churches Who, have, who are charismatic, dynamic communicators, some of whom have disqualified themselves morally or otherwise, 
many of whom have led their churches into error. I think about, for instance, many in the New Apostolic Reformation and Bethel Church and others who would reject the idea of tethering yourself to a creedal tradition that would say, no, it's just the Bible and me and the Holy Spirit and any additional revelation that he may give. That when those pastors stand up and present themselves as a creed unto themselves, that apart from God's just special grace to use crooked sticks to make straight licks, they almost inevitably lead their church into error or they falsely bind consciences. As I established earlier, every pastor has a confession. Many of you have been in churches where perhaps there was a confession on the website, but somewhere along the line, that church began to teach something. You go, is that in the Bible? Concerning perhaps certain view of, of politics and moral obligations to act or vote in certain ways. To have Freedom Sundays with no preaching of the word, but you say the Pledge of Allegiance, of social justice, a variety of other pet issues. Who ultimately is determining what this church must bind itself to? And the answer is that if that pastor has no confession with which to confess or which to submit, and that congregation is ignorant of those confessional standards to which he must submit, that pastor can lead that church and bind them to any pet issue that he desires, and they won't be able to do anything about it other than leave or let themselves be bound, which leads me to my final point. It guards against abusive leaders. It holds leaders accountable. It means that if we have a confession in our church, no elder and certainly not me can stand up and operate by some private confession that you can't scrutinize to open up the Bible and make it say whatever it is that I wanted to say to make you do whatever it is that I want you to do. And so it's not uncommon then that how often pastoral abuse emerges in the vacuum of capricious leaders who have no confessional bearing but just lead on a whim. Right? Confessions guard us against that. It holds teachers accountable and congregations accountable. Finally, it guides. Charles Spurgeon said this, this little volume is not issued as an authoritative rule or a code of faith whereby you're to be fettered but as an assistance to you in controversy, a confirmation of faith, and a means of edification and righteousness. What does he mean by those three things? First, it's an assistance in controversy. You've got this person and this person all coming in and saying, no, I think this is what the Bible teaches. No, I think this is what the Bible teaches. And we come forward and we say, listen, this is controversy. And if we don't nip it in the bud, it's going to divide the church. We have confessional standards whereby we hold ourselves accountable. There's lots of room for us to disagree on lots of things that won't divide the church, but on these things that are necessary for the unity of the church, we have already stated and agreed on what it is that we agree the scriptures to teach. And so it helps us to, it's like a muffler in the church that helps to silence and calm down loud controversy by reminding us of the truth of scripture that we've agreed on. Secondly, it's a confirmation in the faith. 
What it means by confirmation is that it helps us have assurance. Over the course of many years of ministry, there's been so many dear saints that I've sat with that will say things like, how do I know that I'm a Christian? I think I've believed the gospel, but how do I know that the gospel I've believed is the real gospel? How do I know that I've not perhaps believed some false gospel? How can I know that I can't, having believed in this gospel, not lose my salvation? A good confession of faith. Let saints in a church and teachers in the church and fellow members, discipling members, to go back again and again and say, well, let's, let's revisit what we understand the gospel to be. Let's commit ourselves to this ministry of gospel reminding. Oh, our confession will be helpful in continually confirming, yes, this is the gospel. This is what I believe. Yes, I'm in Christ. This is what he's called me to do. This is how he's empowered me by the Holy Spirit to do it. It's a confirmation in faith. Thirdly, it's a means of edification. Edification just means building up. It's a way to strengthen and teach and instruct and to equip the church. I think there are three documents in a church that are most important beside the Bible. Three things. If you never read another Christian book, but you had these three things for the rest of your Christian life, you would do well. You would have a good church confession you would have a clear church covenant, not just summarizing what we believe, but summarizing how we're to live. And you'd have a good membership directory. These are the people whom God has given me to. These are the people God has given to me. For as long as I'm in this church, to love and to pray for and to pursue holiness with, to encourage according to God's word. It's a means of edification. It builds us up. On an elder side, there are going to be a number of men, and I hope more and more and more, who aspire to be an elder. And I could give them a whole stack of books to read, and I have. But really, a good confession is the best way to train future elders. Because elder ministry is no less than the faithful teaching of God's word according to what the church has confessed. That elders are the chief defenders and teachers of a right confession. And so it's only natural then that those who would aspire to be elders would root themselves in the confession of that church that they might be able to teach it in a way that produces fruit in other people's lives and defend it against false teachers to teach according to sound doctrine and correct those that contradict it. Titus 1.9. So that is confessionalism. 